Thank you to the worship team. I love that worship team. It's like they're my own children. <laughs> that was not planned, by the way, either. It's just you got stuck with a lot of Manninghams today. But thank you to all the worship team. Macy and Nina, I'm looking for you. I don't see you, but I know this season is so wonderful. We're celebrating the birth of our Savior, and you guys are the icing on the cake, being baptized in the name of our Savior. So cool to see you both up here. My name is Micah. Good morning. Welcome to Northfield Christian Fellowship. Please post to Isaiah chapter 42. We've been in this book of Isaiah a lot this month, and for good reason, because Isaiah had a lot to say about the birth of our Savior. Today, I want for us to see the beauty of our Savior in this passage in Isaiah 42. Let me pray before we begin. Father, we love you. You are good that you sent your Son for us. What a gift! What love! We thank you. We ask that you would help us today to see a glimpse of the beautiful, just how spectacular your son is, what he did when he came on this earth, in his reign right now in heaven. Jesus, we love you. We celebrate you today. In your name we pray, amen. You know, it's not often in life that things are as good as you hoped for. I don't care if it's a gift, an event, a relationship. They're usually not quite as good as you hoped for. They're rarely better than you hoped for. 30 years ago today, back in 1990, half a million U.S. troops, they were spending their Christmas over in the Middle East getting ready for war. Iraq, Saddam Hussein, he had invaded Kuwait, if you remember. And uh, the world, the entire world pretty unanimously condemned Iraq, and they gave Saddam Hussein a deadline of January 15th, 1991, to withdraw his troops from Kuwait. So when that day came and went, with no withdrawal from Iraq, the very next day, the first wave of U.S. aircraft went into action when seven B-52s from Barks, um, Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana. They took off and they flew a 30-hour round-trip mission to launch 35 cruise missiles on, on January 17th into Iraq, which started Operation Desert Storm. And this first attack was immediately followed by round-the-clock bombing from U.S.-led coalition F-4s, F-15s, F-16s, F-18s, F-111s, F-117s, A-6s, A-7s, A-10s, B-52s, British Tornadoes, Jaguars, French Mirages, and along with gunfire and cruise missiles from Navy ships in the Persian Gulf. It was relentless. At the time, Iraq had the world's third largest military. So the United States expected a serious war, and our goal was to take out Iraq's air defenses as soon as we could so that then we could control the skies and shift our focus to a ground war. Those of you who are old enough to remember Operation Desert Storm, you remember that this was the first um, real televised war that the world had seen. 
We were introduced to a whole new generation of weaponry, and we would watch footage on the news of smart bombs, laser-guided bombs being directed not just at a building, but down a smokestack. Not just at a bridge, but at a moving tank on a bridge. The United States and 40 other countries that made up this coalition, they pummeled Iraq to a degree that shocked even the most optimistic war planners. So after 42 days of this aerial bombardment, we sent in our ground troops, and within a couple of hours, we had run the Iraqis completely out of Kuwait. And as our soldiers continued their pursuit deep into Iraq, they moved so quickly that the reinforcements couldn't even keep up with the front lines. The ground war only lasted 100 hours before our mission in Iraq was declared to be accomplished. From a purely military perspective, I'm not talking politically, culturally, from a perspective, Operation Desert Storm was arguably the most successful war the United States had ever fought. We expected a lot of casualties, but out of nearly 700,000 U.S. troops, less than 300 Americans lost their lives. We expected a much tougher fight from the world's third largest military, but instead Iraqi soldiers dropped their weapons and ran. From a war-fighting perspective, the results of Operation Desert Storm were shockingly better than anyone could have ever hoped. How was your Christmas this year? <laughs> was it better than you could have ever hoped? I mean, instead of the Chevy this year, did you get the Mercedes parked in the front, in the front of your driveway? Were there two of them with two bows, one for him, one for her? Because that, according to the commercials, that's how you have the best Christmas you could have ever hoped for, right? Some of you mourned a loved one this year. Some of you were lonely this Christmas. Some of you started this year with a great job and you're ending this year unemployed. In many ways, this is a pretty crappy year. So if we were to rate our Christmas by our own personal experience, for a lot of you, Christmas 2020, not so good. No matter what your experience has been this Christmas, I want us to remember that Christmas didn't take place in 2020 for us to be disappointed. It took place 2,000 years ago, and the results of that day were shockingly better than anyone could have ever hoped. Our Savior, our Redeemer, our Creator, our King of Kings, our God, came down into this earth to purchase our forgive us hope, to give us eternal life. Amen? So in our passage today, in the first four verses of Isaiah chapter 42, the words that we're about to read are, are God's words spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And, and God is telling Isaiah just how incredible the results of Christ's worth, his, his birth would be, better than anyone could have hoped for. Let's read the passage, Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. 
Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Behold my servant, God says. Isaiah wrote many magnificent names for Jesus in his book. Just last week on Isaiah 9, where Jesus was called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But perhaps none of those names is as touching as what God called Jesus here in verse 1. Behold my servant. The all-powerful God of the universe came to us as a servant. He told his disciples in John 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He told the crowds in John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus was a servant, completely submissive to the Father, the primary goal of redeeming a lost and broken world. A servant, better than anyone could have hoped for. As Paul reminds us in Philippians, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Nobody serves like this. Jesus does. The religious leaders had no desire to serve. They wanted the people to serve them. Jesus sought to serve. He had compassion on those around him. In Matthew 9, it says when he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The religious leaders told other people what to do. Jesus told others what he would do. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Religious leaders placed great burdens on the people. The impossible burden of keeping God's law and the intolerable burden of keeping their own man-made laws. Jesus sought to remove those burdens, which is why Peter tells us to cast all your burdens upon him because he cares for you. My servant, God said, that's who came 2,000 years ago. And in the remainder of these verses, we're going to see six ways that Jesus is a servant better than anyone could have ever hoped for. First, he came from God. Look again at verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Jesus was deliberately chosen. By the Father. It's not easy to make a hard choice. I mean, what do you do when you have a tough choice to make? You play eeny, meeny, miny, mo, right? Not how you make your decisions in life? And the poor sap who loses, for him, the choice is made. That's not how Jesus was chosen. The Father didn't sit around with the Son and the Holy Spirit and say, 
I just can't choose who should go down and rescue fallen mankind. So here we go. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo, catch a deity by the toe. That's not what happened. Jesus didn't draw the short straw. He wasn't the unlucky one who got sent down to earth. He was thoughtfully and deliberately chosen. Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians, in him we have redemption through his, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things upon earth. Jesus was chosen. He came from God. He was chosen, but not forced. Because as part of the Trinity, Jesus was involved in the very decision to choose himself. He came willingly. John 10, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Imagine before the world was even created, before sin had even entered into the heart of man, before man even existed, at the same time that the Father is choosing the Son to become the Redeemer of all creation, the Son is also choosing to go. As the Father is saying, I choose you to go, the Son is saying, I choose to go. He willingly came to redeem the world. God says in this verse, my chosen in whom my soul delights. God delights in his son, the servant who serves better than anyone could have ever hoped. The father verbalized this during Jesus' baptism when he spoke down from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He said the same thing at the transfiguration of Christ. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights. Jesus came from God. He also came as God. Verse 1 continues saying, I have put my spirit upon him. Don mentioned on Christmas Day that Jesus came to this earth as fully 100% God and as fully 100% man. He's the only person since Adam and Eve who wasn't conceived by an earthly father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He didn't have earthly origins. He had heavenly origins. He was one with the Father. He said in John 10, he said, I are one. He was also one with the Holy Spirit. He said in John 15, when the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will be your witness about me. So if Jesus was already one with the Father and one with the Holy Spirit, how is it even possible that God will put his Spirit upon him here in verse 1? I mean, wasn't his Spirit already upon him? 
As God, yes. Jesus was already in perfect union with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus had a great need for the Holy Spirit to be put upon him. To go through the suffering that he would go through without sin. To go through the temptations that he would endure without sin. To go through the emotions, the letdowns, the humiliation he would endure without sin. To become our high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews tells us. Jesus came not just as a man, he came as God. Third point, for all. Look at the last phrase in verse 1. He will bring forth justice to the nations. doesn't say he will bring forth justice to Israel alone. It says to the nations, because Jesus came for both the Jew and the Gentile. He came for all. He came for men and women. He came for adults and children. He came for Asians and Europeans and Africans and North Americans and South Americans. He even came for Australians. He came for all. God promised Abraham in the book of Genesis, and you all the families of the earth shall be. This is why so many of the Jews had such a tough time with Jesus, because they wanted their king to be their king. Skip down to the end of verse 4. In the coastlands wait for his law. Mark chapter 3 tells us that part of Jesus' audience were people from the coastland regions of Tyre and Sidon. These were Gentile regions. Jesus came for all who would put their trust in him. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Back in Isaiah in chapter 5, God tells Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Because as the servant who served better than anyone could have ever hoped, Jesus came for all. He also came without pomp. That's the fourth point in our passage. In verse 2, he came without pomp. It says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. From his birth in a barn to his growing up in Podunk, Nazareth, to his ministry that left him to rest his head, to his crucifixion, Jesus lived his entire life without pomp. The servant never sought attention. Instead, he sought to pay attention to God and to draw attention to others. Jesus didn't come with a megaphone and and a can of spray paint. He didn't come to draw attention to himself. He didn't come to appeal to our emotions and our prejudices. He never organized a mob. He didn't choose his words to manipulate those around him. He came without pomp. He might not have fit in with our society today. I mean, can you imagine this servant in a world of narcissism? I mean... How does a person survive today without posting all of their stupid opinions on Facebook for the whole world to see? 
Jesus didn't do that. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Jesus never sought a crowd. And when the crowds gathered to him, he often sought to escape the crowds. In Matthew 8, it says, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he told his disciples to go over to the other side of the sea. At 5,000, Scripture tells us, after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. He did the same thing after he fed the 4,000. God's word says, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Jesus came in quiet truth. He even told those whom he healed, right after performing miracles, he told them not to go around creating a bunch of hype behind his name. After he healed the leper, God's word says, Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. The two blind men, it says Jesus sternly warned them saying, see that no one knows about it. In Matthew chapter 12, after Jesus healed all who came to him, it it says he ordered them not to make him known. And in that part of scripture, in Matthew 12, Matthew goes on to quote this very passage in Isaiah chapter 42 to say this was fulfilled by what was spoken from the prophet Isaiah. Jesus came without pomp. He never sought attention. Instead, he proved the words of Solomon who wrote, the words of the wise, quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Fifth point, Jesus came to comfort. Verse three, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Jesus did not come to break those who were already weak or frail or hurting. He came to comfort, to strengthen, to heal. Earthly kings boasted about breaking the weak. You remember Solomon's son, Rehoboam? He said to his people, made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. That's an earthly king. Rehoboam boasted about breaking those who were already weak. Here's what our our king of kings said. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A bruised reed he will not break. Reeds were plentiful in Israel. And they were used for many purposes. Reeds were used to make baskets, mats, roofs, even small boats. Moses was put in a basket made of of reeds. Children would often make flutes out of these long skinny reeds. But as soon as a reed got a soft spot or got creased, it was bruised. It was no longer capable of making music. And so a child would do what any one of us would do. We'd just break the reed in half and throw it away and get another reed. There's billions of them. No big deal. 
Many of you in here are bruised. You're wounded. You're sick. You're tired, lonely. You're frustrated. It's been a long year. You're no longer capable of making music. The world says there's billions of you. Just get rid of them. Get another one. Not Jesus. Our God says a bruised reed he will not break. Because our Savior is a servant better than anyone could have ever hoped. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. An oil lamp burns as long as there's oil in the lamp. As soon as it runs out of oil, the wick itself starts to burn, though. And then it smolders and smokes and stinks up the room and gives out less light. You don't want to be around it because it starts to stink. The only way to restore the lamp is to snuff it out, throw away the old wick, and replace it with a new wick before you then refill it with oil. It's an easy fix. A wick is cheap. So you wouldn't really think twice about getting rid of the old charred wick. Throw it away. It's not what Jesus does. Some of you are faintly burning wicks. You fail. The world around you says, you're starting to smolder. You're starting to stink. Just get rid of the old wick. Get another one. It's not what our God says. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Because our Savior is a servant better than anyone could have ever hoped. Human history is full of broken lives. Jesus came to comfort. When Jeremiah saw the coming destruction of Judah, he cried out, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? The book of 1 Peter tells us, By his wounds you have been healed. Elijah poured out his heart to God, saying, They seek my life to take it away. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jeremiah lamented, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. The book of Revelation tells us he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Job cried out, miserable comforters are you all. Paul reminds us the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus is a servant better than anyone could have ever hoped for. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Jesus came to comfort He also came for justice. Look at the last part of verse 3. He will faithfully bring forth justice. 
The nation of Israel longed for justice. They occasionally got justice back when they were their own nation ruling themselves, but they rarely got justice from their oppressors, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans. The prophet Amos exhorted them before they fell to their enemies to let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. But it didn't happen. But when Jesus Christ was born into this world, he came with the promise of verses 3 and 4 that he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. How did Jesus establish justice in the earth? I mean, the Israelites were waiting for this conquering Savior who would judge the wicked. Jesus didn't do that. He will do that when he returns. John in the book of Revelation tells us about the justice that Jesus will bring when he returns upon the wicked. Saying, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. But that's not the justice that Jesus brought at his first coming, that first Christmas 2,000 years ago when he came as a servant. He came then to satisfy justice against your sin and my sin as our substitute. He came to suffer God's judgment against sin in your place. A bruised reed he will not break because Jesus took the bruising for us. In the very first prophecy in Genesis 3, God told Satan that Jesus shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus established justice on the earth by taking the bruising for us in our place. The 53rd chapter of this book of Isaiah, it says it was the Lord's will to crush him. Why? Because God is cruel? No, because God is merciful. He will bring forth justice. And yet because God is merciful, he'd rather crush himself than crush you and me to establish justice over our sin. Jesus came for justice. He came to satisfy God's judgment against your sin and against my sin because he's a servant better than anyone could have ever hoped for. Every one of you in here, we all just celebrated Christmas to some degree. For some of you, maybe this Christmas was wonderful. I hope so. For some of you, this Christmas was painful. This past year, it may have brought upon sorrow and hardship like you never would have imagined. But regardless of how Christmas 2020 went, celebrate the Savior who came from God who came as God, who came for all, who came without pomp, who came to comfort, who came for justice. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights.
delight in the servant who is better than anyone could have ever hoped for. This delight in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, that your son would be called servant is, is shocking. Thank you that he came as a servant better than we could have ever dreamed, better than we could have ever hoped for. Thank you, Jesus, for your comfort, your love, your presence, your meekness, your power, your justice, your forgiveness. What a reason to celebrate. We love you, Lord God. Father, I ask that those who do not know Jesus personally, that this Christmas, they would be changed, that they would become your children. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.